On Thursday, April 15th, defense attorneys rested without calling Derek Chauvin to testify in his own defense. The former Minneapolis police officer chose to invoke his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination in the alleged May 2020 murder of George Floyd. I will invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege today. Is this your decision not to testify? It is, Your Honor. Do you have any questions about your right to remain silent or to testify on your own behalf? Not at this time, I don't. Thursday marked the 14th day of testimony in the trial. All told, the prosecution called nearly 40 witnesses, including eyewitnesses and medical experts. The defense took just two days to call all seven of its witnesses. With me here to discuss some of those witnesses and what Chauvin's defense team was trying to accomplish is Bloomberg Law senior reporter Ian Lopez. So, Ian, defense attorney Eric Nelson had a big task to accomplish this week, right? To basically rewrite the narrative of George Floyd's final moments. Can you describe how we set out to do that? So the prosecution is chalking Floyd's death up to a lack of oxygen because of police force. The defense says that other factors, however, exacerbated Floyd's death. Um, They point to heart issues, drug use, and uh, just general poor health as being uh, major factors in what led to Floyd's death. Uh, The defense has actually gone so far as to say that Floyd was already dying of an overdose. Um, The prosecution is, of course, countering that point strongly, but it's something that both sides have been grappling with throughout the trial. In a way, the uh, testimonies are actually somewhat similar on both sides. Um, The chain of events and the surrounding factors are the same, but the defense is leaning heavily on the potential drug use and health problems as a way to excuse Chauvin's actions. The health expert for the defense was Dr. David Fowler, the former chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland. Fowler testified that it was his opinion that George Floyd's death was caused by a sudden cardiac arrhythmia brought on by hypertension. But that wasn't the only factor Fowler focused on. Significant contributory conditions would be, since I've already put the heart disease in part one, he would have the toxicology, the fentanyl and methamphetamine. Um, There is exposure to a vehicle exhaust, so potentially carbon monoxide poisoning, or at least an effect from increased carbon monoxide in his bloodstream, and paraganglionoma, or the other natural disease process that he has. So um, all of those combined to cause Mr. Floyd's death. But Ian, the defense wasn't just arguing that George Floyd may have died from these other causes. They also brought people to the stand to testify that Chauvin's actions were actually within the bounds of police use of force standards. And we should just say that comes after jurors have already heard testimony from, what, eight other police officers, including the Minneapolis police chief, who all said Chauvin's use of force was not within the bounds of standard training or protocol. One thing we have to remember, though, is that Nelson throughout the trial has urged jurors and witnesses alike to remember to consider the totality of the evidence. What that means now, uh, Nelson is not just leaning on medical experts. He's also making the case that Chauvin's actions were justified because Floyd was a much larger man uh, that was under the influence of drugs while Chauvin was trying to arrest him. 
Uh, these factors, according to Nelson, justified Chauvin's use of force. In Nelson's view, in the view of the defense, um, this force would not have had such a drastic impact on a healthier individual than Floyd. But at the end of the day, of course, the jury is going to need to toggle with whether it was Chauvin that killed Floyd or his health issues. So possibly trying to plant that seed of doubt in a lone wolf juror. And besides the health issues, it also struck me that Nelson was also using Floyd's history of drug use as a way to explain why officers had more reason to apply the use of force that they did. Here's Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, questioning Barry Broad, a former police instructor, about how potential drug use can factor into these use of force decisions. In terms of the use of force, what relevance does possible drug influence have in an analysis? Has quite a large impact in my opinion. How so? Well, because people on the influence of drugs may not be hearing what you're trying to ask them to do. They may not understand. They may have erratic behavior. They may have total, they don't feel pain. So techniques you would normally use to, compl- to com- make somebody comply. Now, based upon uh, your training and experience and your expertise in the use of uh, force matters, um, your review of the materials that have been provided to you, have you formed opinions in this particular case to a reasonable reasonable degree of professional certainty? I have. And can you just briefly overview your opinions in this particular case? I felt that Derek Chauvin was justified and was acting with objective reasonableness following Minneapolis Police Department policy and current standards of law enforcement and his interactions with Mr. Floyd. You know, it almost seemed like what Broad was saying at times was that if an officer suspects at any point that a suspect might be under the influence of drugs, and remember, Floyd was actually asleep in his car when officers arrived. He wasn't behaving erratic at least initially. But he seems to be saying if officers think someone's on drugs, the standard script just goes out the window. When it comes to the drug side of it, as we were discussing, um, I would sum up his views uh, of someone on drugs as um, being superhuman. He did use that word, superhuman. Um, He also said that someone on drugs might not hear what you're asking them to do, uh, and they don't feel pain. So he's portraying George Floyd as somebody who was just being erratic, uh, couldn't be controlled, and that Chauvin basically was trying to subdue him to the best of his ability. And I kind of want to go back to the uh, size difference. Um, One thing that came out during the trial, which I don't think a lot of people were very aware of, is that Chauvin, the evening that uh, the Floyd incident happened, he clocked in at 140 pounds body weight. Uh, They have to weigh the officers after these events to see how heavy they are. The defense also tried leaning on this pretty heavily throughout the prosecution to say, look at the size difference. George Floyd is six foot five. Um, I think Nelson... um, I'm sorry, I think uh, Chauvin is about five foot nine, 140 pounds. Um, so they're trying to lean on the size difference too. So the defense wants to, the jury to look at this as here's this very large man. He's under the influence of drugs. He's being erratic. Um, of course, the prosecution's position could not be more different, but that is the way that the defense is approaching it. Defense attorney Eric Nelson also showed the jury footage of a May 2019 arrest, a year before Floyd's fatal encounter with Chauvin. Ian, What was the purpose of this evidence? 
Nelson's whole approach here is trying to show that Chauvin's use of force was warranted, right? So in trying to convince jurors that Chauvin wouldn't have been aware that Floyd was suffocating while pinned to the ground, uh, Nelson has been using this old footage uh, to hint that Floyd has a tendency to be dramatic in interactions with police officers. They're also trying to suggest that Floyd will try to avoid arrest and that this is the, the perception they have of him as an individual. Now, on the other hand, that really shouldn't factor in uh, because this isn't a trial of George Floyd, it's a trial of Derek Chauvin. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's inevitable that this will have some impact on the jury, in my view. It's hard to say that it wouldn't, right? Um, on the other side of that, too, the prosecution's also trying to paint their picture of who George Floyd was, right? They've questioned his uh, younger brother and his girlfriend during the trial. They've drawn out this image of Floyd as a family man, a community leader, um, someone that's, like, beloved and admired by all around him, so the, both sides do have this kind of competing narrative of who he was and what happened at the event. Ian, as the trial winds to a close and with the court being out of session on Friday, is there anything else that you're keeping an eye on? So as you saw, uh, Chauvin pled the fifth. So the defense is wrapping up. Um, we're just keeping an eye on closing arguments Monday and to see how much Nelson leans back on a lot of some of the contradictions that we talked about between the medical experts, the use of force experts, and to really see how he kind of walks that fine line to, at the end of the day, convince jurors that, look, you know, Chauvin, Chauvin, we all saw what Chauvin did, but what he did was within his rights. And um, it's not only within his rights, but it shouldn't have killed a healthy man and that Floyd's issues were exacerbated by drug use and the like. Ian Lopez is a senior reporter for Bloomberg Law who's been tracking the Chauvin trial all along. Ian, thanks so much for joining me. Sure, no problem. Happy to do it. After closing arguments are complete on Monday, the jury will receive its final instructions from the judge, including information about the three charges. At that point, the jurors will be in sequestration. As to how much jurors should pack for sequestration, Judge Peter Cahill said this. If I were you, I would plan for long and hope for short. Basically, it's up to the jury how long you deliberate, how long you need to come to a unanimous decision on any count. So that's how I would do it if I were you. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Ian Lopez and Marissa Horn. Josh Block is the senior producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Thanks for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is, is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, citing the Passchendaele battle, it's one of the largest battles of World War I. Um, 
That seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.